Hello and welcome to the Broadcast News Wrap, featuring some of the biggest names in the world of TV. This week, we have an exclusive interview with George Kay, the creator of Netflix's Lupin, who tells John Elms how one goes about creating a smash hit for a streamer. And later, to mark the halfway point of the year, the News Wrap team talk flight attendants, Russell T. Davis drama, weird house formats and snooker documentaries in a very special What We've Been Watching. All that coming up on this week's Broadcast News Wrap. One of the things that I've been interested about Lupin is, and it's, with, it's, it's the same with many Netflix shows, there is no rhyme or reason to what makes a Netflix show successful. They just appear, they just happen, they, they drop and they become instant successes or they or they don't become instant they successes don't. yeah from your perspective as as a creator but also someone who observes the industry and has experienced like lots of different dramas and drama projects why does Lupin feel compulsive viewing or has reached the level of interest and intrigue and demand that it has done uh, going into the second part well I listen I love lots of terrestrial drama commissions in the UK so it's not that it but I think that there's a schedule thing with the UK, for example, that there are just certain time slots that are not devoted to scripted drama, that perhaps if you, they were, then you would open up a whole sort of new canon of, of stuff. You know, like if you look at anything across the board at eight o'clock, pre-watershed drama outside of the soaps doesn't really exist. I mean, there's Ackley Bridge, I think. But, you know, what Lupin is te- technically is, is kind of 1980s, 1990s US network drama. It's family it's adventure it's kind of looking for a big family audience and it's pre-watershed and and in fact there's so much emphasis um not just in our on our channels but in cable in the us and and a lot of streamer stuff which is aimed at kind of what one might call nine o'clock serialized slightly dark skewing drama that there's we've left behind this huge space which i think which is the shows that i'm older than you i think but i grew up watching you know all of these kind of great us network they used to be acquired by channel 4 and itv and quantum leap x files you're going right back to you know even real sort of what i would call tea time drama 18 macgyver you know britain had its equivalents um they're very few and far between and so actually you know at a time of lockdown when part one dropped and you know um that was one of the few times when people perhaps did want to watch things as families. So, so maybe there was a nice kind of chime between those two factors. But, uh, and there's also quite a lot of universal themes in, in, in Lupin. You know, it's, it's super French, but there's, there's a father and a son and, 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 and father's relationship with his late father. And, you know, that chain of father-son, grandfather runs through it. And then maybe a little bit of topicality with um, Black Lives Matter was happening while we were filming part one. And we were able to, you know, kind of explore some societal issues, stuff about race. But we were able to do it in, in what is quite a positive show. We were able to smuggle in some of that stuff and, and uh, not have a Sandy op burdened by it the whole time. Or, or he could use it in a positive mm. uh, uh, way for his own ends uh, rather than wear it too heavily. Yeah. Was, 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 when you were making it, did you want to kind of almost do an homage to that, that 8 p.m. drama, the, not the not the high concept edgy serialized drama? Did he want to make something more accessible and lean back as opposed to some of the, the other stuff you've made in the past? 
didn't want to make it violent. I didn't want to make it dark. If you meet Omar C, mm. he, he smiles at you and then the world just improves. And so I just was so um, struck by that that I thought that, that the audience would automatically agree. You can charm the world, you know. And, and so really, the, it was kind of storylining it and finding the tone based around Omar as a performer. I got really, really excited about the idea of, of a family show. There's so few, I was thinking about, it's weird, if you think about British shows that the whole family watch, you think about stuff like Gavin and Stacey. They're very few and far between. They're things that everyone wants to get around the TV and see. Yeah. And I was just thinking, this, this guy Omar, is just, he's got that. And um, so what's the show and what are those adventures and how can we have fun? Mm. Um, uh, yeah, so that's where it's coming from. Yeah. If I take something like um, Criminal as well, and I know that created you created Criminal with your with your colleague at Idiot Lamp, Jim Jim Field Smith, yeah. and and, and yeah. you know created the UK version, and were all all across that. But you also, as you say, wrote on the French version, and I believe exec produced on or on on the internet the whole procedural yeah. concept. Did you always want to plan to move into kind of international drama projects, having having previously done things which feel very different to the kind of things that you're now doing? Before I was a writer, I was in factual development. And so distribution was something that was always really, I really enjoy that stuff. What are the formats? What are the kind of, what TV shows travel? And so when I was devising Criminal, I actually thought, this is a great challenge as a writer to try and sort of box myself into these three rooms. But also, you know, if we get those three rooms right, um, then that's a sort of program that can actually, we could make, we could actually sell that. That could become a format. You know, I was, you know, around the time of in treatment, even, you know, you think of very simple drama formats and you see how they travel. So criminal has a kind of in treatment feel just with crime, I guess, um, just an, ex an excuse to explore character, some more than perhaps procedural. But uh, uh, what wasn't anticipated at any level was the idea of show running different versions of it and shooting those at the same time. Yeah, I mean, is playing with form one of the particular habits or practices that you like to do? I mean, the and and it, as 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 a, as a creator to test yourself in those ways and it, what, what what would you want to do next yeah i mean i i do like to play around with the different grammar of telly um and uh I, when i was writing criminal i think i did the second run of criminal um you know i didn't i wasn't writing anything else as i was writing those four episodes in a quick run hmm. and just at the same time lupin was beginning and I was just such a sort of, I felt like I'd been released into the sort of wild because suddenly I could, you know, set a set a scene outside or with like 10 people in it or, you know, and so it was a, a big release for me to kind of explore. Maybe that has something to do with how um, uh, kind of ambitious some of the, the scale is in, in Lupin. But um, no, I think the more you do, the more you want to write character and find the right character, character's sort of place in the world. And so... Format is fun, structure's fun, um, but uh, no, it's led by character, hopefully. Um, but I do like I, I do like the formats of TV for sure. Sure. Given that you you know your last two series, are, albeit Criminal, obviously has Criminal UK, and that's what you were across completely, and that was all your work, um, and you exec you know show ran the the rest of them, and now Lupin, you've done 
you've done programs that are really international project you know really like and and it's not common i would say for uk creatives to go so wholeheartedly into international projects do, do you think that there is that there is a there's a, a kind of a, a barrier from uk creators to want to try and do that did you feel they should be doing it more are they are they closing themselves off by focusing on the domestic market or english language projects um well you know i think that I, i'm real i'm very stubborn in that i have a project and a script that i want to try and sell and i'll go to uh if, if one commissioner turns it down i'll keep going and, and you know to the point where you know you just wait for the person that was there once upon a time we turned it down first to be replaced by someone else and you go but you know i really get really passionate about the projects you're trying to pitch and i you know certain things i just won't let go and so you know now we have so many opportunities to sell our scripted content that the, there are so many buyers and there's so many different streamers and opportunities and platforms uh, um that really you can go looking in all sorts of places if you if you believe enough in your characters and your story um unless it's super location specific there's nothing to stop you going to australia or canada or the us to sell your show um netflix will buy stuff in all territories from writers of all backgrounds and countries uh, it's just about your comfort level of working if you do want to go down that road of working with um producers in those countries and in different in a different language uh, ultimately i mean lupin i write right through to shooting script in english and then with a very trusted producer and, and a very good english-speaking cast we translate it at the last minute so it's a full english process right otherwise I don't know how we do it but no I think that people should pitch wherever they can the projects they care about and, and try and find just because a TV channel turns you down it's often for their reasons rather than yours because they don't have the slots I mean Criminal and Lupin I couldn't I, I couldn't place those shows on terrestrial TV in the UK you think through those channels and where and who would buy that did you try and pitch those kind of you know the idea of because Criminal I could definitely see on on the on a UK it's true maybe now i mean i i started criminal a long time ago and at the time it didn't feel perhaps like people would buy it. i mean you can't really see criminal on nine o'clock on a bbc one or an itv just because it's such a such a specific visual i think but um yeah there's, there's there's probably scope you're right but um i didn't want to compromise on the idea at any point um lupin was just born out of a netflix dialogue with omar the, uh, the, the work i've done and i'm doing in the uk is is squarely aimed at um what i think hopefully people want to buy in the uk a, a little bit more strategically yeah no fair enough um you mentioned that you 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 wrote and created lupin in english first and then at the last minute translated was it difficult to create a show knowing that you would have to work with different production values for different kind of production expectations for a french show as opposed to what you've done with some of your other projects How well lupin was an interesting one because for the first time or one of the first times uh a french drama was budget wise in terms of personnel and and, and the ambitions of it was, was rising up to meet what we would consider the kind of normal or slightly higher budget level mm. so louis leterrier is a french director who did the opening block of lupin but but is la based and has done a lot of american movies and so they were really going for the bigger version of their show i think lupin is one of the france's highest budget dramas it, i don't think it, i don't think it's a massive budget drama in the global sense 
but it's a, it's a notch above a lot of the things that happen in France. So actually, I was quite, I was able to, um, I mean, I wrote Interior Louvre Day in my first script and expecting that to change. Um, but then they came back and said, they said yes. You know, so there was money up front at the start and there was a lot of ambition for it. Uh, so that wasn't, that was great. That felt, it felt like a, the only new things I suppose were, were, were editing processes, the time that normally people take to shoot an episode in France. It was a, it was a change for them hmm. rather than it was for me. They, they shoot drama in France in an hour in 12 days or something. Whereas, you know, this was, it was longer than that. Sure. Given that you, you're a, a UK creative, I've created what a lot of people are calling the breakout here of 2021 in Lupin because it's had the most traction. And you're saying you wouldn't be able to get that away on a terrestrial. Do you think that sometimes these kind of shows send a message to our PSBs that they, 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 they might want to try and take a, put a Lupin on at 9pm or 8pm on a, on a Wednesday evening? I don't know. It's really hard to tell. It's it's something for them probably, but Netflix has many more hours to play with. I suppose many more rolls of the dice, and you can play with lots more ideas for content. Also, the schedules are so rigid. There are certain places in the schedules that people are not investing in certain types, of, and it's a brave uh, controller that messes with all that and rolls the dice on the show, especially with something that's not, especially with something that's meant to be playful. Or comedic or because that's sort of great unknowable i think it's quite hard to get those right from a commissioner standpoint because who quite knows i mean i mean i'd imagine i have never done that job but like who who knows what's funny and how how that funniness will travel or not and it's quite a sort of hard one to get right yeah um have a wonderful section in our podcast in our news wrap podcast is uh, it's our favorite section it's called what we've been watching and and yeah. it would be remiss of me not to not to take this opportunity to ask you, George, uh, what what have you been watching? I'm very slow at watching telly. I recently watched, I think it's seventy two films series on Murdoch, the documentary, and I just watched Mayor of Easttown, which I thought was fantastic. Uh, have you seen either of those? I have seen the Murdoch, the Rise of the Murdoch Dynasty. Yeah. Yes, I haven't yeah. watched Mayor of Easttown. Yeah. I've, I've, I've actually been watching Lupin. <laughs> I, I want you to, if you're going to transition from Lupin to Mayor of Easttown, maybe a drink in between or a get up and stretch your legs. You need to kind of, that's a crunchy gear change. So that was John Elms's interview with, with George Kay. But wonderfully, I've been joined by a trio of Newswrap hosts. Jesse Whittock is here, John is here, and Hannah Bowler are all here. And we're going to attempt a momentous episode of what we've been watching. We're going to look back at six months worth of TV and consider what our favourite show has been and maybe a show that we expected to enjoy, but it's just flopped a little bit. We're looking at what's hot, we're looking at what's not. It's the what we've been watching special. And we're going to do this every six months forever until the podcast ends which hopefully will never ever happen welcome to my team hey max what's up hey team hey matt hey man how's it going 
Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. Yeah, I'm all, I'm all good. Thanks, John. So this is, this is very exciting. I've really, I've, I've chalked up loads of enthusiasm for this moment. We've been talking about it for weeks. It comes on the eventuality of our 49th News Wrap podcast. We couldn't, couldn't quite tie it in with the 50th, but there you go. So we're, first, we're going to talk about a, a show that we've really enjoyed over the past six months. Jesse Whittock, I'm going to go to you first. What have you been loving over the past six months? Thanks for having me, Max, and for having the idea of putting on this, uh, as you say, momentous, what we've been watching. I'm just going to say, just to caveat everything, that like the opinions of myself, yourself, Hannah and John are just that. They're just opinions. So if we offend anyone with our views on the show, you know, just just ignore us and move on to the next. Uh, well said. It, we don't it, even know very much about TV, do we, Jesse? Just, just, just <laughs> ignore, ignore the haters, right? That's what I always say. Absolutely. Um, but Everyone's a critic. Exactly, exactly. And in this this case, we that's exactly what we are. So my favourite show of the year so far is I'm going to represent the the international or the US side of things, as I often do. And it's The Flight Attendant, which is HBO Max's really rather brilliant comedy drama series uh, starring Kaylee Akuoko, best known for playing Penny on the Big Bang Theory for many, many years. Uh, I'm very glad she's left that absolute dumpster fire of a TV series in in the past because I just think that was a, a travesty that it ran for so long and was so popular but not here to to bash the Big Bang Theory. Anyway, the flight attendant, for those who don't know, played over here on Sky One. It was acquired for Sky One. It wasn't part of the sort of HBO output deal that Sky has. Um, That stuff tends to go on uh, Sky Atlantic. So bought uh, towards the end of last year and actually aired in America at the end of last year, but didn't air in the UK until this year. So I'm saying that it qualifies. It comes from the folk Warner Brothers uh, and Greg Berlanti Productions, who've created shows like Riverdale, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and the sort of Arrowverse shows, which are all over American telly. So you know it's um, it's going to be sort of high uh, high quality stuff. Berlanti makes basically everything that's ever been made ever. He does. He's like uh, he's like this production super guru, and this one basically born out of a deal that uh, Kaylee Cuoco had with Warner Brothers. When she came out of Big Bang Theory, she wanted to make a series based on the novel The Flight Attendant. And effectively, what it what it looks at is Kaylee is playing plays this this flight attendant, as you might imagine, who effectively is like a total wreckhead, really. And sort of the whole series is kind of following her as she sort of spirals out of control. And it's all based on this uh, mystery plot line where she goes on a flight to Bangkok, meets this like swarthy passenger on the flight, sleeps with that evening, wakes up the next morning and finds him dead. So she basically conceals the evidence that she was uh, anywhere um, near what happened. And she doesn't know if, if she had anything to do with it. She can't remember anything. And effectively, the the plot sort of uh, spirals from there. So she's sort of doing her own kind of gumshoe routine to try and work out what's happened the fbi quickly get involved there's a kind of shady international crime group who are chasing her there's a really good turn from michelle gomez who plays this uh, like psychotic sort of assassin character many of you will uh, recognize michelle's name from green wing c4's uh, almighty sitcom from the 2000s when she played uh, sue white the sort of crazy office manager and uh, yeah, so she, she's really good. Kaylee's really good. 
it's a sort of fast-paced show, really good to watch, clearly looks good. But I think besides it just being quite fun, because all of that sounds fine, but like, why would that be your show of the year so far? The sort of really interesting thing is the way that the series kind of like also is able to weave in this story of Cassie, the, the uh, flight attendant's sort of mental breakdown and her sort of spiral towards full-on alcoholism. She's sort of obviously in, in way too deep and she's battling these like really like awful things that have happened in her childhood and you sort of jump between that and this kind of you know hyper-produced American slightly like schlocky kind of series and it's interesting because it's almost like the Americans version on the kind of shows that we've seen over here that have been led by you know female either actors or writers that explore mental health so things like Fleabag you know I May Destroy You I Hate Susie definitely feels like it's sort of taken some cues from like at least that sort of mindset if not those shows directly it's not as good as something like I May Destroy You which is you know in the kind of god pantheon of of television but it's really good really fun but also kind of makes you think about sort of the condition uh, of people and people sort of thrown into like crazy crazy situations so like if you i'd say if you've got now tv or now as it's now known or sky definitely pvr that catch it up it's uh, well worth your time Lovely. What a glowing review. I like your comparison to the to the UK-led female comedy dramas, which has clearly been shape of, of things that have happened over the past couple of years. Is it quite self-contained or is there going to be more series? Uh, so they have commissioned a second series, which is going to come out next year. I think the author has written more books around this this world that he's created. Mm. So there's definitely more source material to work from. And it sort of felt like the you you could have wrapped the the show where it was but there are equally some quite straightforward threads that they can pull out to uh, set up some new stories i think there's been some stories going around that in the in the second series the the flight attendant has become a sort of quasi cia operative which sounds a bit ridiculous if particularly considering that the state that she's in for most of the series and the the various crimes that she commits um, as she tries to work out like what's going on around there but yeah that'll be fun to see and look if that's no good that's fine by me there's one really good series it's um it's well worth do- doing Kaylee Cuoco's excellent she's really funny and um but also kind of pulls off the, the sort of darker sides of the role really well and it's it's Greg Berlanti production so you know so it looks good and is and is uh, kind of at the top end of scripting really I don't know whether you felt this Jess but it very much had the kind of other well the other Berlanti SVOD show that I liked uh, recently um, on, on a rival <laughs> Netflix you it had that kind of rollicking through the drama type feel lots of tension lots of cliffhangers etc um the one thing that frustrated me and i i I, bear in mind i haven't actually finished it i got to about five episodes doing and i didn't get bored i i i I just went on something else and haven't gone back to it i was like when you screaming out in the first few episodes is that she's absolutely done i mean there is so much evidence <laughs> against her it feels like it, it should be wrapped up immediately that's like a that's a watertight case for a prosecutor uh, i don't want to reveal too much but like it, it, she's she's in a pretty sticky situation yeah you definitely have to suspend some of your disbelief at the start of the the series and i think that's that's definitely there are some plot holes it's like i say it's not a, a perfect series by any means but um it's definitely one of the most fun fun watches i've had this year which is what we've needed, really. You also forgot Kaylee's top role of all time, Eight Simple Rules. Well, there you go. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you brought it up, Hannah, and, I'm, and I apologise to any Eight Simple Rules fans beyond yourself. We, How could we, you? We accept your apologies. 
<laughs> well, let's let's leave let's leave Jesse feeling awful for the next few minutes <laughs> as he considers uh, as he considers his errors. And now we're, we're going to go to Hannah Bowler next. Hannah, you're thinking BBC One. You're thinking entertainment. I am. I am. I'm going for the curveball of the year, which is this is my house on BBC One. I would say when it first hit, TV was pretty offended, but then out of nowhere, everyone was like, "Well, this is." weird and it's brilliant and to be honest it was yeah I can't can't fault it really so it was made by expectation and it came out in March and it was kind of one of these BBC one midweek entertainment along with was it Gordon Ramsay's bank balance which also came out midweek which to be honest if you put the two together it's a a competition to be honest because that is not a top line I ever wanted to see no offense to Gordon Ramsay he's good on kitchen nightmares but let's leave it there (laughs) um so basically it kind of came out at the same time as there's this big rise in the guessing game format so we've got like mars singer and i can see your voice um but this is something quite different it's pretty low production values um no shiny floor and it's all set in the home counties i think like most house i would say was in hitchin which i'm confused by but basically there's four people who all think or all pretend that they live in one house. And it's fronted by Stacey Dooley, which again, quite interesting pick. But it's nice to see her doing something that's not her usual repertoire. And she's fun. She clearly just finds the whole thing very funny, very enjoyable. And just, I don't know, you can feel that it just is something outside of our space that's just a bit of light, breezy entertainment other than constantly talking to paedophiles, drug lords and sex offenders. So that's good for Stacey. What's happening at the same time as the four four actors and one real person as they walk around the house and kind of interact with different rounds? There's one that's quite awkward where they get the partner of the person who lives in the house to sit down and kind of like fake stories of how they met are played out, which is awkward and shouldn't work, but it's quite funny. There's also like a kind of, um, you have to, they'll point something out in the house and talk about it and make up a story around it. But obviously only one of them is telling the truth. And then there's a kind of quick fire trivia round at the end, which also trips people up quite well. And then the upshot of it is that one person is revealed to be the true owner of the house. And if they make it through without being guessed, they get the £1,000 prize, which is a very strange prize. Quite cheap, but again, it kind of works with the low budget values. What kind of as well that I really liked about this show, I would say, is that they have like a lineup of celebrities that all talk through what is going on in the house at the same time. And I really enjoyed the mixture of people because... On paper, should it work? You've got Bill Bailey, you've got Emily Atak. Put them together, doesn't look right. But on screen, it really works. I mean, it's quite enjoyable. And then I would say they throw in, so often they throw in a kind of like an extra celebrity who comes on. And those ones have been also really interesting. I think the first episode had like Lawrence Llewellyn and Bowen, which I mean, that's always fun because I'm a former changing rooms fans so bring him in the loop and great entertainment it's quite funny seeing this show play out because at first the reviews were somewhat odd but yeah over time it seems like there's a bit of a cult following for the show I saw one review earlier just said 
titled What the Hell Have I Just Watched on TV? So that's the kind of flavor of things that you get from the show. But I think after all of its episodes have come out, I think there's like a little bit bubbling where people are like, do you know what? This is fun and entertaining and just a bit silly, like a bit silly and a bit naff. And that's, I think, what everyone needs right now. So I hope it comes back for a second series. Also, I saw something weird on the internet where the first one of the characters from the first series described it as the best experience of her entire life participating on the show so what more do you need (laughs) that's a glowing review it was all in the home counties because of coronavirus because they all oh I, i think it was intended to be i thought that too and then i read something about halfway through the series it was intended to be all in different places uh, and then in the end, it's so true. They all had it in Hitchin because there was the one episode where the guy couldn't name any clubs in Hitchin. And then it turned out he was the guy. Yeah. And there are clubs in Hitchin are frequented. Fantastic <laughs> red herring that, though. That's really good. Well, the thing, I, what, the thing I, I loved it for several reasons. I, I almost <clears> wanted to have it as my favourite as well. And, and I, um, I really like how you learn, to, you learn to get good at it by just realising that it's always going to be the awkward ones because they're not going to bloody... If you're an awkward person, you're not going to be on this show if you're pretending. So all the pretenders are the ones who are really good actors and really good at uh, like performing in the rounds and whatnot. And then all the awkward ones. So my, my favourite one was the Hitchin guy. And he um, he had to say the dance at his wedding and then do the dance at his wedding. And he forgot what the what the main song was at his wedding. And then the, the, when he tried to do the dance, it was just like the most uncomfortable thing that, that anyone's pretty much ever seen. And it turned out to be his house. Yeah, that he was... forgot so many things about his own life. Because on the spot, he was like, I don't know what is reality and what's not. <laughs> I also love the fact that a BBC One, 9pm entertainment show and like you say Hannah it's like pretty low budget but the fact of the matter is it's got this like kind of quite prominent slot it was just like so willing to be like sort of so like dowdry in the sense that a £1,000 prize is just creates so little jeopardy in, in the kind of pantheon of the sort of things that we're used to, you know, people winning like recording contracts and people winning, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds and people winning a million pounds on the, who wants to be a millionaire. And this is just a thousand quid for a, for a pretty, you know, in due to the coronavirus, as you say, generally quite well off people who a thousand pounds probably doesn't make any difference to. Um, so there was just absolutely zero jeopardy and i kind of think that adds to the whole kind of weird sort of culty kitschness of the show i mean i loved it as well i thought it was brilliant i completely yeah. agree on the celebrities and someone described it to me as it feels it's a bit like celebrity goggle box there's like this little element of it that is like it's really enjoyable watching celebrities watch this all play out in real time i don't know if that they were forced to do that because of covid to have the celebrities in a different place and do it all via zoom but whether they were forced to do it or not i just love that element Jamali Maddox, so funny. Really, really funny. Because like it still hasn't rated that well. I think it was like 2.4 million consolidated. So I don't even think that many people have seen it. And the people I've spoken to outside of telly are like, just it's a bit indifferent to it. But um, I think definitely within these circles, it's been a rave success. John Elms, international editor of Broadcast. You're not allowed to say Lupin, by the way, John. <laughs> no, I, I was tempted by Lupin because I... It is one of those shows which you watch and get hooked on and is very good. No, no, I'm conversely to Jesse. I'm uh, uh, as international editor, I'm going for a very uniquely British show. I'm um, not uniquely British in terms of subject matter, but 
um, the focus was uniquely British. So Channel 4's HIV drama, It's a Sin, was just quite simply a breathtaking piece of television on so many levels. The the subject matter it, it tackled is something that is, you know, is really difficult to kind of, I would imagine, well, Russell T. Davis, the writer, I should start back, said that he, he failed to get this past commissioners at the BBC and ITV and before even before channel 4 picked it up there were some you know there's some i think there were some reservations on that part with the subject matter being quite weighty and and too weighty for a a tv drama that's outside of an svod service which tackles weightier dramas or can do and the the series itself is about the 1980s aids crisis in um specifically in focusing on london in the uk Russell T. Davis, a creator, uh, is a, a gay man himself, and he drew heavily on uh, his experiences in that time. It follows uh, five 18-year-olds, Richie, Roscoe, Colin, Jill, and Ash. One might expect it to be super sad and super um, heart-wrenching, and it, and it is in spades. It's one of the most emotional pieces of drama I've seen in the last well, decade, let alone last year, but it was it was incredibly um, heart wrenching and poignant. But that is not its defining point. It the one of the beauties with the one of the things that made uh, it's a sin such an important piece of TV for me to watch was it was it was joyous. It was it was so there was so much joy in the in the series. It isn't about the crushing horror of 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 such a of such a scary and and you know um a, a disease that was an affliction that was so unknown about, you know, had so much mis misinformation about it at the at the time and there's obviously now we've learned so much more. And and I think the reason that it, it struck such a profound note is that quite a lot of people have consigned the, the 1980s AIDS crisis to a kind of a moment of horror for the world, which was, um, you know, articulated by a really scary advert where John Hurt gave this really doom laden you know, monologue about how AIDS was coming for everyone. And there was a crashing tombstone and it's included in loads of 50 scariest moments on TV lists and uh this this drama yes it has the the sadness and the horror and you know the pain that the disease caused and and the lack of understanding around it but also embraces the joy which the people the participants in the in the drama really had um and and and, and kind of there was a, a wonderful bon viveur element to it and and it made for a, 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 a com just a complete piece of tv it had humor it had sadness it had music it was um it was acting it was it felt felt at many times like a, a musical on 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 screen without you know ever falling into the slightly you know kitsch and and jazz hands aspect that sometimes musical tv can do and i it just it just had a you know a really fantastic element i think one of the other aspects that made it so important though was the of the main cast ollie alexander and lydia west were probably the most well known but the other actors callum scott howells amari douglas and nathaniel curtis i don't think have been on the the real mainstream awareness of of actors whereas the supporting cast people like keely hawes stephen fry neil patrick harris are bona fide bona fide a-list stars so it really flipped that it presented the kind of the more upcoming acting community to to tell its story 
and the supporting cast were the the more well known and that that really resonated because they were young they were young people in the story they were young actors being cast the, the the cast was also extremely diverse and he um, Russell T Davis made a point of casting gay characters in the roles to really give the the extra level authenticity so in terms of a drama piece it had everything for a tv industry it was authentic it was well acted it was well written i had all the great elements of storytelling and it covered a, and it informed and educated as well as entertained i mean it was it was perfect public service broadcasting beautiful it should have been on the bbc clearly I mean, I mean, this is the thing post post it coming out, it absolutely smashed records for uh, Channel 4 and uh, has, you know, done um, wonders on its um, in its catch up service and VOD service all four. And, you know, it's one of those dramas that when it lands, the people who turn it down will just be like, that was that was a foolhardy mistake. What a lovely glowing review. I don't have much to add. I, I enjoyed the juxtaposition between that and This Is My House. I think we couldn't have got, we couldn't have got two more, more different shows. But uh, I should add that I did also. It's a sin as my favourite drama of the year. No, no. Um, you can't say that now, retrospect. It, it really, really struck a chord. I mean, I was in floods of tears at the end. Me and, me and my um, fiancé were completely warmed, but also absolutely devastated because it is so, it is so sad and happy at the same time a wonderful mix of emotions fantastic stuff really enjoyed that review john thanks very much but i'm gonna have a go too even as host so a show that i thought that myself john and jesse were going to tussle over a little bit because we were messaging a lot about this at the time was bbc two's gods of snooker which was on quite recently actually and is still available on iplayer uh, it's from Mindhouse Productions, which is Louis Theroux's company, which I might go on to talk about in a minute. I get quite frustrated with a lot of documentaries at the moment in the sense that they just follow a very similar pattern. So the, the this, that sort of in thing of having all the people in the dark sit down on a chair in a dark room and approach the chair in a very similar way. And they sort of do that little cough uh, before they start talking. <laughs> Loads of archive, no narrator. I feel like narrators are just like so out of fashion at the moment. And some of these documentaries are very good. Don't get me wrong. Once Upon a Time in Iraq, et cetera, et cetera. But I think documentaries, for me, it feels, especially on the BBC, have sort of fallen into this pattern. And I, I worried a little bit that Gods of Snooker might follow that pattern. I also just thought it might be a little bit dull, but actually it's by far and away my show of the year. I was reading this just after I'd watched it. Joel Golby, who wrote a piece for The Guardian, was tweeting about it. And he said, the best documentaries make you care about something you've never thought about for one second in your life. And I just thought it was brilliant, a really brilliant sentence to to summarize Gods of Snooker, which actually I have to counter doesn't in any way apply to my enjoyment of Gods of Snooker because I fucking love Snooker. <laughs> so I'd actually, I'd actually been to the Crucible about a week or two prior to watching it, which just like really made me want to watch it even more, especially as the Crucible was one of, if not the first event to return properly after COVID. So we were part of one of those event pilots. So Joel Golby's point doesn't apply, but I have spoken to several people who don't like snooker, who watched the show ever since, who really, really enjoyed it. And I think there are several reasons for that. I think one of the main ones is it took what currently is perceived to be a quite dull, quite uncool sport. It's almost like a play. It's played indoors. Everyone wears a waistcoat and you have to be very quiet and you can't drink while you're watching it. And it just gave it this ultimate like rock and roll sheen. And I I couldn't believe that snooker could feel so rock and roll. 
before watching this three-part documentary series. And it's all, so the first episode focuses on Alex Hurricane, the late Alex Hurricane Higgins, and it comes back to him throughout the series. But the first step is mainly focused on him. He won two world championships and he's kind of like the main character. He was sort of the, the Ronnie O'Sullivan of his day, although he makes Ronnie O'Sullivan appear quite tepid and boring, really, when, when, you, watch, uh, when you watch some of this, some of this documentary. But everything is really encapsulated by Alex the Hurricane Higgins. And it just, it just hits you immediately. Like one of the first scenes is a press conference he did when he was absolutely out of his tree and he was nearing the end of his career. You can't believe that stuff like that was going on in the late 1980s in snooker of all sports. But that, that's right at the start. And from there, it really sets the tone for what I believe to be a really high quality documentary for which I learned loads of, again, something that I feel quite well educated in, but I got a really good feel for what was going on at the time. And while Joel Golby's comment really applies in terms of this being a documentary that anyone can enjoy, it also is really great for snooker fans and it showed loads of the snooker and and you found yourself almost on the edge of your seat, especially in the 1985 final, which was watched by 18.5 million people and went down to the last black. Crazy. But again, you really feel that atmosphere. So the first episode focuses on Alex the Hurricane Higgins, who really is a fantastic character. But throughout these three episodes, it really avoids the rigidity of certain other documentaries. So we don't have one person per episode. There's not particularly a chronology. It sort of does make its way through the 1980s, but it certainly jumps between and it often goes back actually to the late 70s. The second episode brings in quite a few more characters. I was amazed that Steve Davis, who won most of the world championships in that decade, but has nicknames such as The Robot and Interesting in an ironic way, was also just made to to be super interesting in a non-ironic way. Like somehow they managed to rock and roll up Steve Davis, which is really, really difficult for anyone who watches snooker uh, regularly, uh, as, as, as snooker fans will all attest to. And then Jimmy White comes into the third episode. Again, I had no idea that Jimmy White was anything other than your average snooker player. It turns out he was almost as much of a nutter as Alex the Hurricane Higgins. And he comes out with potentially the greatest quote that we'll hear this year or possibly the next decade. If cocaine is the devil's dandruff, then taking crack is like sucking the devil's insert the final word here i don't really need to say it on this podcast and suddenly you're just like what am i even watching this is about snooker but jimmy jimmy white is coming out with these absolute crazy lines so i loved the self-contained nature of the story i loved how you really get a feel for the time so i'm um, very interested in the 1980s anyway and it just yeah it almost made you feel like you were there it's like a modern historical doc it put me in mind it was a completely different subject matter but it actually put me in mind quite a lot of the channel 4 jade goody documentary from last year subject matter utterly different but you really the reason i probably would have said the jade goody doc if this had we'd been doing this a year ago uh, and the reason that I enjoyed that so much was you you so got a feel for the mid noughties didn't you, watching that? It, it captures everything with the music and the footage and the quality. And Gods of Snooker did exactly the same thing. And I think that's another reason why a non-Snooker fan would really enjoy it. And clearly, one of the reasons that Snooker hit the height of, heights of popularity in the 1980s was because the unemployment rate was really high. Um, and working class people who'd lost their jobs were watching Snooker. And again, the 18.5 million in the 1985 final kind of like encapsulates that. But there was loads of really cool scenes with various funny snooker players out on speedboats and in clubs and whatnot. And and just as I thought I might get a bit bored in the third one, Jimmy White just turns up and 
yeah really uh really just like continues it but there was loads of emotion throughout anyone who wasn't crying at the end when jimmy white was carrying alex hurricane higgins casket at his funeral i, I don't know you, your your heart is as black as the ace of space is making me emotional just thinking about it that was a really beautiful moment it was very sad to follow through the demise of Alex Higgins and these snooker players were just all everything about them was there to see really like regardless of whether they were contributing to the documentary or had passed away or had chosen not to contribute to the documentary you got a feel for every element of, of their lives which is something that really really impressed me and Louis Theroux's Mindhouse so I, I kind of rolled my eyes slightly when I found out that the first non-presenting documentary that Louis Theroux's company was going to be putting out was about snooker. I, I just thought the whole thing felt a bit arbitrary and not very youth skewing. But it, it turns out that he's, he's him, him and Aaron Fellows who, who run Mindhouse together clearly have a really good eye for this stuff. And it, and it moved through seamlessly and the use of archive was great. We've talked about what's hot, but we do have to talk about what's not. And once again, disclaimer, this is very much the personal opinion of the broadcast employees. Jesse, what was your flop of the first six months of this year? To start with, I'll say I think it's been a pretty brilliant six months of telly. I think there's, there hasn't been that much that's really kind of fallen under the level of expectation when you think about things like It's a Sin and, you, you know, the, those sorts of shows where the, the expectation was, was super high and it clearly like met those expectations and went past them so I was sort of, it took a while for me to kind of get to a point where I was thinking to sort of really remember what it was but then it, it jumped out to me that uh, I don't know about uh, just after we'd finished the flight attendant actually me me and my wife we were looking for something else to sort of episodic to watch and we went for Netflix's The Irregulars which is a drama republic produced uh, sort of fantasy sort of supernatural mystery period drama thing the fact that i can't actually tell you what it is right now is a sign that i didn't like it and it's it's basically it's kind of it's about these characters from the sherlock holmes sort of world called the baker street irregulars who turn up in two or three of arthur conan doyle's novels or stories a bit of a weird one i couldn't really tell you whether it's supposed to be a kind of show of the week sort of thing or if it was supposed to be a serialized kind of you know carefully plotted series every episode had its own story and there was a sort of there was an overarching story running through it but it was hard to get through I'll say and in fact I will admit I didn't get through it I got to about episode six and just found it all too disappointing really um, I didn't have massive expectations for it but there was something tonally off about it the acting was was pretty good there was some there was some um some good young talent in there Thaddea Graham I think is a name that we'll, we'll hear going forwards uh, Harrison Osterfeld um Darcy Shaw these are all very young actors and actresses who you know did as as good as they could have done with what was kind of some some quite chunky scripts to be honest comes from a guy called Tom Bidwell who also helmed Netflix's Watership Down adaptation 2018 so that was quite well received he's clearly a talented guy looks great this this series the Victorian London that they they create uh, was was pretty good some of the effects were were okay but it just doesn't hang together and unfortunately uh, it for me it was uh, it was a bit of a bit of a fail so i'm gonna put it up there as my my flop of the year sorry drama republic good stuff 
a fine anti-review. I thought Watership Down also not well, too well received. Uh, well, yeah. the, the rabbits looked funny. <laughs> uh, well, yes, that that was a criticism. I'm not sure how much Tom Tom Bidwell could have done about. No, that. no, sorry. Tom. Uh, uh, it certainly got better reviews than than the Irregulars. I'll say that. Well, that's that's Jesse. He's had he's had his moment in the sun there with his anti-review. How how about you, John? What was your flop of the year? Yeah, again, I echo Jesse's thoughts in terms of flops. Uh, I, this this year's been a pretty damn good year for tv i mean even if you don't like a series it's invariably done well in some most quarters or rated well the the show that i am calling my flop is is very much in that camp in the sense it it rated well and it seemed to get a lot of uh, of of you know positive thought for most people but uh for me uh hatrick mercurio productions bbc one four-part thriller uh, bloodlands was my flop of the year uh, starring James Nesbitt, it promised lots of great, great things because it was, it was, you know, it was, it's, it's, it comes from Jed Mercurio. It comes from the wheelhouse of Jed Mercurio, although it's written by um, a new writer, Chris Brandon, which is great. I think, in actual fact, you know, some of the writing was was a, a good part of the series. But that being said, I remember particularly in the first uh, first episode, there was a some tortured dialogue between James Nesbitt's opening character and I, I'm trying to remember who it was, but it was it was. I remember thinking, I was like, oh gosh, that line felt so delivered that it really really didn't hold um far but basically it's a cold case detective thriller which is great i mean i love those they they work really well on tv and this one really did work well on tv it rated very highly uh, set in northern ireland and um it it, it it centers on a cold case emerging from the time of the troubles in in uh, northern and southern ireland and there are just quite a lot of plot holes um things that seem so obvious when you in the opening episode there is a moment where they they look at the wrong tree or they're looking from the wrong place at an island where they're looking for this specific tree and they start digging in this spot and then they suddenly realize on this tiny island that the other tree that's just over the ridge is the one they're supposed to be doing it and then James Nesbitt does this whole we've got to find something and grabs a shovel and starts digging and it's supposed to be symbolic of his pain at needing to find something because it's wrapped up with his his own wife's death in the past and it just felt so it felt so acted and and over delivered and then the 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 series continues but the big reveal and there is a big reveal because there's often a big reveal with a Jed Mercurio inspired drama or influenced drama comes in, I believe, either the end of the second episode or the end of the third episode or the beginning of the third episode. I think it's the end of the second episode. By episode three, you've kind of gone, well, kind of the jeopardy and the mystery that is surrounding a lot of this drama is has just been revealed to me. And now I'm just waiting for it to kind of climax. And it climaxes. And I, I, I went, well... The ending was okay, and probably if they leave it there, that'll be good. And then I think within hours, possibly the next morning, that it it found out they had been renewed for a second series. And I went, I knew that that was a possibility, but I was very didn't want it to be renewed. Not for not winning business. I just felt it could have ended then, and would have probably just had that self-contained. So despite promising so much, and despite having some really good elements, Bloodlands is sadly my 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 flop of the year. Well, it, it did very well in the ratings. Six million people disagree with you, John. Absolutely. Although maybe they won't. That, that that was the mountain who watched the first episode. So who who knows how many of that six million completely agree with you, John? <laughs> I take that back. 
but thank you. I think I think that that did it very well, and it, it was a bit of a shame because it was a, it's a Jed Mercurio's indie production, but he's blooding young writers. Yeah, uh, and so so maybe a bit of a shame in this instance that, that it didn't tickle your fancy. Absolutely, and who knows? I mean, second series might be great, and it also played it, it led into the start of Line of Duty series seven, so it worked well for the BBC and had a nice continuum. There you go, there you go, Hannah. It's your turn. What's been flopping? I'll keep it short and sweet. And I also, to caveat this, I think Rose Matafeo is hilarious at stand-up and absolutely excellent on panel shows. I literally love and adore her. And through gritted teeth do I kind of make comments on a female-led, female-written comedy. So I'm very sorry. But I just struggled with her comedy, Starstruck. It was a BBC Three HBO co-pro from Avalon that came out I think in April this year. Again, it was one of those shows that really promised so much on paper. And I just struggled slightly with the dialogue. And it was a little bit cliched and a little bit stereotypical conversations. Kind of millennial woman in her 20s, dead end job, talking about having a period. Just those kind of things that you expect to happen and you expect to be talked about. And I just, it, yeah, it just felt a little bit too cliched. And I wanted something that was just a bit different I think so that was it for me I know it's been really well reviewed and most people I speak to absolutely love it so I I feel bad that it's kind of not hit as well for me a few of the other elements that I found a little bit hard was so I thought uh, Rose's acting was really great she was really fun and breezy and all landed all of her lines brilliantly her love interest Tom who was played Nikesh Patel found him a bit stuffy and maybe not stuffy but his character just didn't really have like an edge to him and I kind of want in a love interest just I don't know he was a bit square so that was one element that I found hard and there was also one scene where he was meeting with his agent and that was just full of cliches the kind of bougie female agent who wants him to do this and this type of show but he just really wants to like play more meaningful roles so as I say Rose is very funny and really well acted I just felt everyone else around her was just a bit yeah just too cliched and I think it kind of comes in this realm of those kind of female POV series like Fleabag and but it just didn't have that edge to it that I kind of was hoping for in in a kind of female comedian POV series that is kind of having a bit of a boom time at the moment. But I mean, everyone else seems to love it. It's already been renewed for a second series. John Scoop over there. So yeah, that would be my flop. Mm, that is what this category is. Didn't deliver. Yeah. Didn't deliver what yeah. we hoped. And that, so that was Hannah on Starstruck. I, I uh, find myself agreeing with you as well. The agent scene uh, was, was like the, the most cliched agent scene of all time. And I'm sure there have been plenty of cliched agent scenes. I, I'm going to be super quick. I'm not going to do any caveats, though, because we've all, we've all done caveats before we've started saying uh, <laughs> the show that, that didn't quite meet our expectations. But mine is actually uh, um, another BBC show, and it's BBC One's entertainment format, I Can See Your Voice. So I got really into the masked singer this year i didn't enjoy the first series of the masked singer that much but i really liked the second one it might have been a pandemic thing it was it was just like quite a fun watch it's a fun guessing game guessing game formats all the rage we've already brought that up and so bbc one went for a reboot of the south korean format i can see your voice i think it might prove that not necessarily do the broadcasters need to bet on every south korean format it just 
felt I, I only watched the first episode and I found it to be quite stale from the beginning that the vague approach is that you get five contestants they you don't know whether they can sing or not they lip sync they'll all be so that they'll be like a teacher or a policeman or whatever so it borrows the mass singers like calling these people by their profession or calling them by their hobby or something they sing they uh, excuse me they lip sync. You don't know whether they can sing or not. And then you discover as you go through the the judges are guessing. And it just, there was very little jeopardy to it. I didn't enjoy the actual guessing element particularly. Like, I don't think it's particularly fun guessing whether someone can sing or not. That's just quite an arbitrary thing to guess. Whereas obviously on The Masked Singer, you're like trying to guess whether someone's like Glenn Hoddle or Terry Venables. Uh, I think that's a, lot, a hell of a lot better. Uh, the Masked Dancer, we, we won't even talk about that. But for, for me, format didn't work. I didn't think the judges were particularly good. I think it suffered a little bit. You know, some shows have really thrived having to be made under COVID conditions. I'm not sure this one did. Without an audience, it it did, unfortunately, I think, feel a little bit amateur. Paddy McGuinness is, is absolutely everywhere. It came up against ITV's Game of Talents at exactly the same time by the same producer, Thames. And I haven't seen Game of Talents, so I can't comment on that. But it was interesting how, how they were going up against each other its ratings were fine i don't know whether it will be renewed for a second series or not but for me i expected quite a lot and didn't come away with very much thank you for listening to the broadcast news wrap i've been max goldbart and you've been listening to the wonderful george k creator of lupin plus my colleagues john elms hannah bowler and jesse Whitter. You can catch all 48 previous episodes of the Newswrap on Spotify, iTunes, or on our website at www.broadcastnow.co.uk.